0: More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do.
1: In the car before my kid's PTA meeting.
0: Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
1: I never win and tell.
0: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Welcome to Theater Geeks Anonymous. At this time, we ask that you turn off all cell phones, Unless, of course, you're using them to listen to this podcast, in which case, please keep it on. And please refrain from any flash photography as it is dangerous to the performers of this podcast. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy the
1: show. Welcome. <laughs> I'm still crunching. Ebony has a Thinman in her mouth and I totally pushed record knowing that. <laughs> <laughs> we had to have something. We we were having some technical difficulties and we just it kind of continued on into today's recording oh, process. Lord, so guys. we Oh, I'm Pamela and I'm Ebony <laughs> and you've reached Theater Geeks Anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> Did you like that? That was amazing. <laughs> this is where we tell the story of Broadway flops, scandals and new works. <laughs> Broadway flops, scandals and new. Did you like that? Have you still got cookie in your mouth? I I think I'm okay now. Oh, that's good. I
2: needed something. Right? It's stressful.
1: Cookies, man.
2: And then we got to talk about who fails, who sues. And we got to tell their stories. Yes, we do.
1: Because, guys, (laughs) it's been real rough. (laughs) It has. It has. We've done a lot of laughing, a little bit of crying. Lots of praying. Yeah. <laughs> we're trying to get through. But hopefully, I think we've got it. I think we've got the figured out right now. So what? Oh, we were going to talk about the show we went to go see we this were, week.
2: We talked about, uh, we went to see Pacific Overtures. By at Clas-
1: Sondheim.
2: At Classic Stage Company. Uh, it's on East 13th Street. Yeah, in um, Manhattan. Mm-hmm, by Union Square. Mm-hmm. Pacific Overtures is a show that's not done very often. so uh, I definitely wanted us to jump on the chance to be able to go see it. True, true. And also it's probably going to be an episode later in the podcast. Oh, yeah. maybe not in season one but probably in season two because the first incarnation that was on Broadway did not last very long. Nope Do we even we don't have any
1: stats though.
2: Don't. You'll have I, to
1: pay attention to the next time we do that in did, an episode.
2: <laughs> I did listen to an episode of uh Behind the Curtain. Okay. Which is a podcast that I highly recommend and that i binge listened to and I absolutely love the gentleman who host it. <laughs> and they did an interview with the woman who was the casting director on that show. Yeah. And she I just talked about how she went about casting that show and the difficulty in casting and something that I have said numerous times is I feel like society and technology is just figuring out figuring out how to produce on time and we're just catching up to begin to like even understand where he came from, what his motivations right? were, and just because his his work is so deep and so layered and so mm-hmm. beautiful and so wonderful. No, and I'm also with you. We we haven't even had there's not been and still we're struggling for opportunities for minorities to even be a musical theater. Sure. And so when they were producing the uh, inaugural um, production of Pacific Overtures, the lengths that uh, the casting directors had to go to. Oh, to order- even find enough yeah. Asians to cast. That's right. Our, wow. It's really a remarkable story. And yeah, so no that's kidding. why I really uh, feel like it's going to be important for us to do So when I saw this production, I connected to it because the story is basically the westernization of Japan.
1: Mm -hmm. America basically came in. Uh, westernized Japan, took right. away all of their traditional heritage, mm-hmm. and then kind of gave Japan then the idea to westernize other countries right. that they wanted control over as well. Right. And so, well, and it wasn't just America. Oh, no, there it were, wasn't. It, it was, was all of the Russia, Western. Yeah.
2: The British, uh, mm-hmm. like everyone just Dutch, came in yeah. and they, they wanted... To be able to right. export and import goods. And because of that, like... I
1: think the issue at hand was the fact that they came in and they didn't want to accommodate J- Japanese tradition at all. Not. They wanted J- Japan to accommodate them. That's right. And so, and that was why ultimately you were so angry. Speaking
2: as a minority, I felt like I come from a people group that was ripped from their country treated like creatures instead of human beings, enslaved and westernized. Nothing of their culture was respected. Right. And so as we sat in the show, I'm connecting on that level with this production and the people uh, and the characters in this show because that happened to my ancestors. You know, they I, were
1: misappropriated.
2: Well, definitely. And, and then I was watching another minority who was going through um, the same thing on their own land, which is like even worse. Yeah, because it was their own land and their land is sacred to them. But I I can understand uh, the difficulty in connecting with like each character, I guess, on a, a
1: personal level in well, terms of
2: like what they're personal story is and And that was my
1: trouble but to be honest just in hearing what you just said Mm -hmm. you almost make that personal connection for me Mm -hmm. I guess I was disappointed but I also wouldn't give up the opportunity to see it again in its full version absolutely I would love to see it in its
2: full version and I hope that this production does bring awareness to the show so that it is able to be produced in its entirety sure
1: but well there's a huge revolution going on in actors equity right now based on the my Minority issue. I'm going to segue because we are talking a lot right now um, into Kelly the Musical, which is also about an immigrant of sorts. Of sorts. I think he
2: really was an immigrant. Well,
1: I mean, in the show, he was. Well, I guess everyone is. Yeah, we're all. All right, never mind. Okay. Here's the segue. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Kelly the Musical. (laughs) Uh, The synopsis is that it's set in the 1880s, and it's about a New York teenage busboy named Hop Kelly, who's an Irish immigrant. He's a sentimental daredevil who wants to make a successful jump from the Brooklyn Bridge and become a hero. He chickened out three times already. But he is surrounded by a group of Bowery gamblers who are betting against him surviving the jump, and they don't like—they don't like the suspense. <laughs> How—that's how they would say it, I imagine. Do you think so? I think so. <laughs> they decide to throw a dummy off the bridge in his place, but Hop really wants to make the jump, and eventually, he successfully does so. And curtain. So uh, in real life, Hop Kelly was actually based on a real guy Mm -hmm. named Steve Brody. Mm -hmm. This was still based back in the 18... He was born in 1860, so this would have happened in the 1880s as well. Um, uh, On July 23rd, 1886, at age 25, Hop... Well, Steve jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge and survived. Though, there's a little contention about that. So now I'm going to skip back about a year, a little more than a year. In May... 1885, there was another man named Robert Odlum, Odlum, who attempted to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge and actually died trying. He claimed that he was wanting to prove that people don't just die from falling through the air, so that if someone was involved in a fire, they would be more encouraged to jump out of that burning building and into the hammock that was waiting with the firemen down below. Okay. Um, but it also said, and this is the funniest part to me. He also wanted fame and money. Don't we all? I wouldn't Not mind fame. the money. I
2: mean, everybody wants the money.
1: <laughs> I'd like that. So here's Robert's story. Uh, 5.35 p.m., he jumped from the bridge, but because it was super windy that evening, his body was turned while in the air, and he actually landed on his feet and his right hip when he was hitting the water. Uh, a friend swam out to him and was able to get him into a waiting boat, and he was alive at that point. So when he came to, he asked if he'd made a good jump. Uh, He then started spitting up blood. So he was not okay. Uh, It turned out that he actually had internal hemorrhage and he died ultimately from a concussion. But it was also shown that he had a ruptured spleen, liver, and kidney and that he had cracked ribs. You know what they did a mythbusters about that too where they like oh, dumped buster oh man it was good like it was like every like at a certain height like every internal organ would have every bone would have been broken every internal organ would have ruptured what, like like
2: just in the air once you hit the ground
1: uh it's not the ground just the water oh, cuz like water, the water has that surface okay. tension that is almost right. as uh right. solid as like a concrete ground I bet
2: that mythbusters is on Hulu
1: I bet it is mm-hmm. Hulu.
2: <laughs> I don't know if i going to do one of those
1: commercials. Uh, but actually going back to Brody, after he jumped, people didn't believe that he made the jump. And I'm sure that it was probably because Robert had tried the jump earlier and he didn't make it. Right. So they um, were disputing the fact that he jumped and were making claims that his friends had actually thrown the dummy over the bridge instead. And mm-hmm. that he happened to be in the water already and pretended to have made the jump successfully. Okay. But – After all this happened, he became an actor and pretty much fulfilled his dream of being in the spotlight. So I guess he fulfilled his goal, which was to be famous. Um, Anyway, oh, here, an interesting note, actually, is that uh, a little over three months after Brody claimed to have made his jump, there was a man named Larry Donovan who actually did make the jump Mm -hmm. successfully. Mm -hmm. So I guess, I mean... Nobody knows for certain whether Steve Brody made the jump or not. There's proof showing that it can be fatal, and okay. there's also proof showing that it can be successful. What,
2: do you know what happened? Like, what was it? What were the differences in the jumps? Like, why? well,
1: that's why I mentioned that it was super windy that day because okay. they think that that was what ultimately made robert die where he could have been successful because he didn't do it straight into the water he was slightly off kilter okay and so that's what they think happened but who knows right i mean it was just his time uh so i was gonna tell you all of this information that i had researched and then i came upon an article from the Saturday Evening Post in April 24th of 1965.
2: Oh wait, I found it. Cuz yes, we got you the did. Second Act trouble book. Yes. And I I was at a coffee shop and I was like, look at this. <laughs> and I took a picture and sent it. Yes, yeah. you
1: did. So, thank you. Because that meant that I threw all of my other research out the window <laughs> in favor of doing just the story from the Saturday Evening Post mm-hmm. because it is fascinating. Uh, But there is one tidbit that they did not mention in the Saturday Mm -hmm. Evening Post, and that is that at the end of this show, they ended up losing $650,000. Now, if you know me, and you do, (laughs) because we're friends and we're doing this podcast together, you will know that I was like, what would that be in today's money? And so I Googled it. Oh, no. And I found out that it was $5 million oh, in geez. today's money. So that was back in 1965. That's how much they lost. Now, I'm going to go into the Saturday Evening Post story, but I wanted to give you just a little bit of information before I mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. Basically, there were several producers, and I'll name them all in just a little second because they're, uh, they're important to remember their names. But the lead producer, who I'll introduce shortly, is the one that contacted the Saturday Evening Post and said, "We want you guys to be in this process with us mm-hmm. from beginning to end, so that you guys can write a story. It's going to be amazing. You can have an all-access pass. So that's awesome, right? Like it was completely unprecedented, and it still does not happen right. because there's a lot that goes on. You'll find out. There's a <laughs> lot that goes on in this process of putting a show together that does not." need to be seen by the public and really honestly it's better that the public doesn't see it i mean like you and i are fascinated and Mm -hmm. i'm sure that there are other lots and lots of other (laughs) theater geeks out there that are equally as fascinated by this as we are Mm -hmm. and so i guess maybe i am glad that they did this but i also kind of understand that maybe it's not the best idea to do Mm -hmm. in the future (laughs) so here's the cast of characters in our saturday evening post story the lead producer is Joseph Levine.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: He was able to bring in $250,000 into this venture. He raised the most or he brought in the most money.
3: Okay.
1: He was brought into it by David Susskind and Daniel Melnick, who were partners in TV pr- production, which is, I believe, where they met Joseph Levine, who do- okay. does a lot of movies and probably the TV as well. Suskin and Melnick brought in 150,000 and then rounding out um, the total of 400,000 was Columbia Records bringing in 50,000. But as far as I understand, at least in terms of the research I did, Columbia Records was really more of a silent investor. Then you've got the director and choreographer named Herbert Ross. He had been choreographing a lot, uh, but had never directed. So this was his directorial debut. Then you've got the guys that wrote this musical, Eddie Lawrence, who wrote the book. uh, He had written a lot for TV comedy sketches and did. uh, He was a nightclub comic, but he was also an artist. That's going to come into play later on. Uh, and Mark Charlop who wrote the music he had also written the music for Peter Pan with Mary Martin so he was kind of a big deal at this point wasn't
2: he working on that at the beginning of he,
1: uh winter? he was working on it while they were creating this music together it was told basically that they wrote it back in 1959 in like nine days of and I quote fierce inspiration <laughs> they called this a labor of love though mm-hmm. so it was basically done on the evenings after Eddie had done his nightclub stuff and after Mark Charlotte had done his Peter Pan songs. Okay. So for all intents and purposes, these guys really just wanted this piece of art to succeed. They ended up attending every single rehearsal. They were very involved. And also, they said that the show was never produced before because several other producers that wanted to make it also wanted to make unacceptable changes to the script. That will also come into play later on in my story. (laughs) Uh, They originally conceived the show as an ironic farce, Uh, i.e. Brecht, who wrote Three penny Opera. So Mm -hmm. think very European um, songs that were meant as a commentary to the audience. Mm -hmm. They had, you know, major themes of social injustice and also a falsity of romantic love, they said. Mm -hmm. But they also really said that they were thankful that they had finally found producers who were brave enough to present such a play. Mm -hmm. This is what's difficult. Because I think starting right from this moment, there was this huge either miscommunication or misrepresentation on the parts of the producers. Because it seems to me that the writers had a very concrete idea of how they wanted this play to be Mm
3: -hmm.
1: uh, and the ideas they wanted to get across and how they wanted it to be performed and seen, like the feeling of it. And it seems to me that they may have just kind of been told by the producers, yeah, it's great the way it is. We're going to we're going to do this. This is amazing. We're not going to touch it, but it's it's kind of a shame. But I'll get into this a little bit later, too. But that was just kind of to give you some insight. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Lawrence was actually quoted as saying those other guys, meaning the potential producers that were earlier than Lawrence, uh, than uh, Susnick and Melnick. Those other guys wanted to change the kid into some kind of knight in shining armor, like a crummy love story. So these guys, like I said, had a very, very strong idea of what they wanted and what they did not want. Mm-hmm. More that what they did not want, I think. Lawrence believed that artists' work were... Or was inviolable. And I think that goes back Invaluable? to his inviolable, meaning you you should not violate an actor's oh, okay. work. You should not touch it unless the artist – I'm sorry, not actor, but the artist – unless mm-hmm. the artist explicitly says that you can – It is the way that it is because the artist made it that way. And that is the way it should stay. He was actually trained as an artist in France. Mm -hmm. So he, you know, he's very eclectic. He's Mm -hmm. got a very uh, eclectic background, but he, that was his stance on it. And Charlotte was quoted as saying that the play is something that I believe in. He says it thumbs its nose at cliche. Uh, they weren't attempting to appeal to the 12-year-old mind. They said that this is 1964, so it's against sentimental. There's no perfect fifths or octaves. Um, I think that he means, like, there's no happy endings. This is real life. Uh, And then he says, you know, at least let me be wrong on my own terms. I hope that I still believe in it when it gets to Broadway. And then it was Levine's, basically, Levine's idea. He was the lead producer, as I mentioned before. He brought in the most amount of money. It was his idea to bring in Lewis Lapham from the Saturday Evening Post to do this whole story. Mm-hmm. And then he left so basically like he was more of the money guy and he said, okay, cool. You guys have my 250,000. I'm going to go back and do my movies in California. Uh, Melnick and Susskind were put in charge of this whole venture, but Levine had faith that they were going to be able to do it all the- on their own, on their own. And then he would just rake in the dough mm-hmm. when it came. But Meln and then Melnick also um, was quoted as saying that with any luck, you'll be able to write a textbook on how to produce a play in the American musical theater. I mean, like, is that narcissism? You just you just never say things like, like you that. You don't.
2: You don't. You, you don't want to tempt fate. You, Yeah. You don't know what it's going to be. You don't. You can't say this is going to be the greatest thing that anyone's ever seen. Like, <laughs> you should never start writing something like that. It's you have true. to write a story because you're passionate about the story. Right. And you feel like the story needs to be told.
1: Right. And by all accounts, Lawrence and, and Charlotte both thought that that was the case with their story. Right. But it's, I just think it's really interesting that the producers came to this man who they knew were going to be quoting them the whole time and just basically saying, hey, bunch of stupid stuff. we're going to show you how it's done. Oh, so silly. Uh, okay. So when the show started rehearsals, they had a month at the New Amsterdam Movie House, which I actually think is now the New Amsterdam Theater, which is on Broadway in 42nd. Is that... Right, the new Amsterdam Theater is there. I think we'll have to Google that to make sure. We would. I'm gonna possible. just say it. I'm just okay. gonna say it with confidence. <laughs> But then after a month of working there, they moved to a larger rehearsal space at the Court Theater. Mm -hmm. It was quoted in the Saturday Evening Post that the actors at the point that they moved Mm -hmm. were bored. That's the word he used. But he was saying, you know, like they would sit around, they would be reading their newspapers, they would be chatting each other up. It was, but it was all like, I can completely understand that, though, because as a performer, it's like you get to a certain point where you're like, come on. Let's, like, do this. Mm -hmm. Let's poo or get off the pot here. (laughs) I said poo. Um... (laughs) But it is interesting to note that they had already spent a month and then they moved to a bigger rehearsal space, which also tells me that they had been rehearsing in like this shoebox of a place where they couldn't possibly have been able to do their numbers full out. And there were quite a few big dance numbers in this show because Herbert Ross was also a choreographer. Right. So he, you know, he made sure to, to have that at the forefront as well. Um, Suskin. now see, this kind of leads me to believe that Suskin really didn't care about opening the show as much as just staying in rehearsal, yeah. because he was quoted as saying, the musical comedy is the only generic American art form. I would like to have one continuously in rehearsal. He says it's great therapy to come and watch the singing and dancing.
2: And, uh, <laughs> you know, okay, so here... I do find that theater can be therapeutic. Absolutely. And, but this is like, you just need a therapist, sir.
1: <laughs> you need to find a therapist. Don't put the actors through. No. That's not what they're getting paid Perpetual for. Perpetual rehearsal? Yeah, no. that's. I mean, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Like, in the 60s, it would have been considered okay. a drag. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. But I'm going to say it with confidence. <laughs> So uh, at the end of the first week of rehearsals at the Court Theater, Ross, Melnick, Susskind, Lawrence, and Charlotte all gathered on a Thursday night to consider a possible elimination of a song sung by the characters of Frank and Jesse James, which were, it was kind of like a sideline story okay. um, within the broader spectrum of Kelly the Musical. Every time changes were brought up. Uh, Lapham said that the writers would resist it and Charlotte would actually have a physical reaction he said that he would start twitching and then ultimately would just glaze over so these writers were very hesitant to change anything about their script because they had such an emotional connection to it which also is kind of a bad thing to have because it's never going to be perfect the first go around it's always going to have to have changes Yeah,
2: writing (sighs) is rewriting (laughs) <laughs> and if you, it's true. And yeah. if you don't understand that, and if you're not willing to make the changes, then you're not giving your piece the room to breathe and be the best that it can be. Sure.
1: And when you put the actors, because to you it change, as well, oh, completely. That's, I mean, I, completely.
2: Well, good writing is rewriting.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! So at the end of that week, at the Court Theater, the cast actually performed for an invited audience of one hundred friends and family. No one laughed or applauded very much, it said. And that was actually a quote from the Saturday Evening Post. So these were friends and family, and they were not keen on this show. Ross was quoted as saying there isn't a page of dialogue that works, not a line. Melnick is quoted as saying that the audience is just too respectful. They feel that they're listening to poetry. It's just too honest. However, the consensus at that point was that except for a few minor problems in Act One, it was still in good shape. And although they expected changes when they got to Philly, they felt like it was a good product at that point. So, okay, (laughs) these I wrote in my notes, famous last words, all in caps, because this is what Melnick says before they leave for Philly.
0: Step into the world of power, loyalty Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
1: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18+. Terms and conditions apply. The wonderful thing about this show is that everybody is working together. There is none of that terribleness or that viciousness, that those, those clicks common to most musicals. What we have here is unity. So now they've moved to the Schubert Theater in Philadelphia. They're having their first rehearsal. Costumes are shown. Sets are shown. And they are considered to be a revelation. (laughs) And I will say that they were very expensive. So that was a pretty, very expensive, I should say, very expensive revelation. Costumes cost $90,000 and the sets were $100,000. So there's half their budget right there. The writers did not like them. They saw them as too real, Mm -hmm. as too materialistic. Charlotte said that the imagination droops and suddenly you're competing with my fair lady. He actually went on to say that in East Germany, they would understand how to do this play. This is where you get this breakdown in communication where Lawrence and Charlotte want this very um, minimalistic, very dark you know, they wanted to do it in a black box theater.
2: It's like cabaret. It's like totally. three punny
1: opera. Completely. Well, and it's three punny opera, exactly, because mm-hmm. that was where they were drawing their inspiration from. Uh, okay. So after the first rehearsal, it's 1130 p.m. The rehearsal ended and they had only gotten through the final scene in act one, Ebony, from the whole day. Well, and maybe not the whole day, because I would imagine that maybe they would start rehearsal at like noon. So at least close to twelve hours. That's a long it's time. It a
2: two and a half hour show, tops. right? Maybe and,
1: three. And they had already been rehearsing for more than a month at mm-hmm. this point. So. There's a meeting in the basement. And Ross, the writers, and the producers are all there. Ross and the producers are all saying that Kelly's not sympathetic or heroic. Lawrence is asked to write three new scenes, and Charlotte is asked to write a new song. They were very reluctant, but they agreed. When the writers left, Melnick called them... Okay, this this part right here made me so angry. (laughs) Because they knew that there was a man in their midst... That was writing everything down, that was going to be making an article about this. Mm -hmm. But still, when the writers left the room, Melnick felt comfortable enough to call them children, and Suskind thought them ungrateful. He said they ought to be down on their hands and knees for all the creative collaboration they're getting. So that's nice. doesn't make any sense because it's the theater and that's your job is to collaborate. Well, and a producer's job is to produce the show. You get the money and you put the show on. If you had an issue with the show before you got it, then you shouldn't have taken it or you should have made it very clear that these are the issues that you're dealing with beforehand. Exactly. But what makes I guess it's so funny because I waffle between whether or not, you know, who I feel the most sympathy for. And at certain points I'm like these producers are jerks. But then at the same token it's like the writers were completely inflexible and so if they are inflexible and if they are unwilling to make minor changes let alone major changes which is what this play actually needed right then nobody's going to be then this show isn't going to be a flop well because there's no way to do it it just sounds like no one was
2: actually there to make
1: theater Right. They always wanted to make their point. Right.
2: <laughs> because if you're making theater, you're collaborating. Mm-hmm. That's the only way to make good theater is to work with other people, be flexible, be willing to change. Yes. And that goes for both sides. I mean, everybody. Everyone yes. has to be in it. Every to be single a community person. And
1: to have... Actual unity. Well, and you bring up a good point, too, because from the very beginning, you have to have every single person on board and supporting your show and to be as excited about it as you possibly can. And that includes all of the actors.
3: Right.
1: And they are already at this point bored and they don't want to, like, there's always already this kind of feeling that they don't want to be there. So, you know, that's really difficult to kind of come back from. So... December twenty sixth is their first preview, Uh-oh. so I guess I imagine that they had like two days off for Christmas, and now they're back in Philly. Levine is back to see the preview. He's coming to realize that success and failure depends on five or six men in New York City, mm-hmm. i.e., the critics. <laughs> Um, The audience is unhappy. They overheard a woman that they termed as the lady in the veil. She was walking through the lobby after the show, and she said that she felt sorry for the cast. Oh, dear. Like, how sad is that? Ross, the director, is hoping for bad reviews. Melnick is relieved because they were right all along about it being a bad script. So, like, these guys are rooting against the show because they just want to prove their point. They want to be like, I told you so. We need to change this. The cast is drinking away their troubles. Uh, I think it was at the Variety Club. I think I have it written down later. Um, But still, they're holding to the old maxim. And I had never heard this before. Maybe you have. Uh, Philly audiences are always wrong. No, i had never never heard heard that before. Okay, so maybe it was a 1960s thing. (laughs) But one of the cast members was overheard saying that they hated West Side Story. So I guess that proves their point. (laughs) Now skip to December 29th. They're at the Barclay Hotel. It's the day after opening night. Ross, Melnick, suskind they're reading all of the bad reviews. They are all criticizing Kelly as being an oaf and that the story is really tedious. Uh, the producers decide they're going to cut the James brothers from the show. As I mentioned before, that was the sideline. So you had uh, Jesse and Frank. James, they had a song that they were going to cut, but now they've decided to just cut those roles completely from the show Mm -hmm. and move a more successful dance number in Act 2. They're going to move it to Act 1, and they're also going to insist that Lawrence write whatever they told him to write and to cut Kelly's opening soliloquy called Ode to a Bridge. So these are all things that they decided before the writers actually joined the meeting. That's when the writers arrive. Oh, dear. Understandably wary Suskin reads the review that says, it's a tedious story torpedoed by indecision. And he tells the writers that he agrees 100%. Uh, Melnick brings up cutting ode to a bridge and he says it's no good. Lawrence says, that's the show. That's the way it's written. It's written like that on purpose. It's like a bad poem. That's the whole point of the joke. And the producers say back to him, well, it isn't funny. And Lawrence says, well, my friends think it's funny. And he won't budge. So the producers decide they're going to drop that Uh, for now. Yeah, what friends? Because friends and family were there and didn't laugh. Well, that was the friends and family of the actors. What I think he's talking about are like all of his friends that are in the nightclub circuit and also the TV comedy writing stuff. The thing is, I mean, look, comedy is objective. yeah. I can think something is hilarious and you're like sitting there straight face and you could be laughing your butt off on something else. And I'd be like, that is not funny. Right. So, you know, it depends on who's watching it. So, yeah, his friends might have thought it was really funny. But the bulk of the audience does not. Right. Or they just don't understand why it's supposed to be funny. Right. And in that, if that's the case, then you have to rewrite it. There's nothing that you can do to explain to the audience, like, this isn't an opera where you can write the synopsis or the libretto inside the program. And that's, you know, oh, oh, I see. This is why. Well, this is what's happening. I get it. You know, you can't have that in this musical. So in that respect, I agree with the producers. Basically, so then at that point, he won't budge. The producers decide they're going to drop that for now. And they're going to bring up Kelly's character flaws. Uh, They say he needs to be more lovable. And they request a new ballad from Charlotte. Lawrence says that he sees it turning into a Broadway spectacle and he hates it. So this is also where it comes into play. It's not tr- it's not going to be art. It's not going to be the art that they expected it to be. It's turning into like this Broadway show, this musical comedy in America, but that's what you wrote. Right. Like you're you're trying to produce a Broadway show in musical comedy, you you know? Ugh. This is tough though, because do do... off Broadway, buddy. Like maybe Mm smaller, like or like write the movie first, yeah, and then make the show out of it. But yeah, I mean, like that was my idea to do in a black box, like do it in a small little intimate theater and like really get word of mouth going. But see, that's kind of the way that theater works here Mm -hmm. now. Mm As opposed to when it worked then. Like then, all, all people wanted was big spectacles. All they wanted was to go and see a Camelot or go to see a My Fair Lady, and they didn't really care to see anything artsy. And also, I mean, look, if you're, if you're looking at spending and at that point in time, it was maybe like twenty one dollars a ticket. But mm-hmm. in today's money, it's like, well, how much are we paying for a ticket today? I mean, the cheap seats are—you can't get a cheap seat less than fifty, it, unless well, you do like rush on, or the, on the lottery, a right? On right. a musical, except
2: right on a musical, because there
1: are plays where you can get sure. Yeah. But you know, like if you're going to go see a show, if I'm spending this kind of money, you better wow me, right? That I guess that was where they were coming from, and it's certainly where I come from too mm-hmm. when I spend that kind of money on a ticket. Mm-hmm. Okay, so skip now to January 3rd. They are in a first rehearsal with the brand new scenes that were written. So I guess they did agree to write the new scenes. Okay. They're going to be performed the following night. That is actually... That is what happens in musical theater. Like if you're doing an original show, things will change all of the time. You'll get new scripts and you'll basically be performing them either that night or the next night. So Mm -hmm. it's not for the faint of heart putting on an original show. Uh, So basically, so yeah, so they, they get their new scripts. They find out that two of the actors were fired. Lawrence hates his new stuff. And he's the one who wrote it. So like this is the rehearsal going into it. The cast sits down. They're handed new scripts saying you're going to do this tomorrow night. We've, by the way, we've fired two of your friends. And also the writer hates what he's written. Welcome. Like, ah, oh, I can't even imagine the stress. But, but that goes to show you that basically writers wanted art and the producers wanted money. Right. And there was really no way to connect the two. January 5th. Barclay Hotel, new material was disappointing. The audience doesn't laugh. They have no sympathy for Kelly. Suskind and Melnick demand changes be made. They demand changes be made. Like, that was in, when I read that in the post, I was just like, I mean, I guess, look, they must be getting frustrated at this point, but demand is kind of a strong word. Yeah. Uh Ross. You get more with honey. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> uh Ross blames, uh, An actress, Ella Logan, who plays Kelly's mother in the show. She was the lead in Finian's Rainbow in 1947, Ella Logan was, uh, and she was hoping that this show would actually be her comeback to Broadway, Mm because it's been like a couple decades, I think, since she's been, well, maybe less than a couple decades since she's been on the stage. This is a quote from Ross. He says, she's a cantankerous lady. She's so vulgar, I can't stand it. She's hurting us and she'll definitely have to go. And then Melnick, who I've just come to realize is a huge yes man, calls her cancer. It's like, uh, you can't treat your people like that. Anywho, <laughs> the writers then point out that she's the nearest thing to a star that they even have right. in this show, and she's the one receiving the loudest applause, and tickets are being sold directly because, because of, of her. her. Melnick says, well, her part is irrelevant, and they're willing to take the risk. Uh, so she would be taken <sighs> care of. Now, he says she's going to be taken I know. I just can't. It's hard. I'm going to try to like go through this quickly cuz it is hard. It's like ripping off a band-aid. <laughs> Melnick says her part is irrelevant. They're willing to take the risk and he's going to take care of it after Wednesday, Wednesday night's performance. Cut to Wednesday night. They're at the Variety Club. Now the Lapham is now with the cast, who are all depressed. Rumors are circulating. They've, they're have they hearing that there's going to be a new writer, that instead of going to Boston, they're going to go to Toronto so they have more time to work on the show. Um, Don Franks, who is the actor that plays Hop Kelly... Is losing confidence because with the rewrites, his performance has become less and less convincing. So he's just like moping around the variety club. Oh, Oh, I have to read this. I'm going to get the Saturday evening post. Can you hear it? (laughs) (laughs) Real paper. And it smells like real paper, too. I love the smell (laughs) of old books. Uh, Ellen Logan came in at about 2 a.m., round-faced and sly, a woman in her early 50s, she wore a Hawaiian blouse and looked around the room with the exaggerated melodrama of a conspirator in a Shakespearean play. Talking softly among her supporters in the corner of the bar opposite to Charlotte, who I guess was also there, uh, she reported Melnick's visit to her dressing room. That night, she said he had come to her and told her that her part was being reduced to five lines in the first act and six lines in the second act. She interpreted this maneuver as an attempt to humiliate her and thus oblige her for reasons of her own pride to quit the show if she quit the producers could say that she had violated the contract and therefore they were under no obligation to pay her <laughs> this so is so wait wait though this is why i love ella logan she was having none of it and she's like you know look she's not a spring chicken in no, the business she's been around she has been around a long time she says but i ain't moving I told him very politely I'd speak to my lawyer, but I ain't moving. I don't know how she actually, if she had a an accent, but I just gave her one. So at this point, the cast is starting to resent all the behind-the-back stuff, and I can completely yeah. understand why. Absolutely. Because I've been in that kind of situation, and it is toxic. Thursday afternoon, Ross calls a rehearsal. Everyone is rebelling. The cast is scared of the critics, and they're feeling incredibly insecure. Halfway through the third scene, one of the actors throws his script and yells that it's terrible and he can't say these lines. What do they even mean? Cast members are now in tears. Others are saying something is fishy, but they don't know who to trust. Ross is saying, I know the script is bad, but changes will be made. You must not deteriorate under emotional strain. It's rough, but that's why we're out on the road. Melnick pipes in and says, we can't start acting like animals protecting our own interest. He then told Ella that she was destructive influence and asked her to cooperate. Then said, this is, I, and I love Ella again. You're going to love her too. He says, if the show's a flop, we'll all go back to television. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and Ella pipes in and says, you'll go back. Some of us belong in theater. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The writers, basically at this point, I mean, the writers had this contract that disallowed changes to be made without their approval. So they felt confidence because they had this ironclad contract that says this is our stuff and this is the way it stays unless we decide that we're going to change it. But the producers are coming at them super hard. And so now it's kind of like mommy and daddy are fighting and the cast members are stuck in the middle, which is terrible. And they're just using poor Ella Logan as a scapegoat. Really? January 8th, they're at the Schubert theater in Philly. Ross decided that at this particular rehearsal, he's just going to throw the script out and he's going to do some improv exercises with the actor Or the actors. Lawrence comes in to witness this, but wasn't told beforehand. He leaves, has some words that are very loud with Melnick, because Uh apparently they could be heard on stage. And then he leaves. Now, here's the timeline. Same day, that's a Friday, January 8th, Melnick receives a telegram from the writer's lawyers threatening appropriate action if the producers continue to permit unauthorized changes to the script. January 11th, which is the following Monday, Suskind gives Ella Logan back all of her stuff in the show. Interesting that. <laughs> Tuesday, the 12th. Oh, and apparently, I forgot to mention this Suskind was actually out of town through all of this. So okay. Melnick was the one making all of these decisions. Okay. And perhaps was the only one making the decision about right. Ella Logan, which is why Suskind felt confident and comfortable coming back and saying, you know what, just take your stuff back. We're going to do this right. Right. Who knows? Uh, Tuesday, January 12th, after the third revision, Melnick told Lawrence he was dried up, but we could bring in another writer to help you. His offer was refused. (laughs) Uh On Friday the 15th, producers decide they're just going to do whatever they want. On the 16th, Lawrence and Charlotte are through with Kelly. Their lawyers file a demand for arbitration. Uh This is devolving very fast. On Monday the 18th, the writers seek a court order to stop the producers from bringing it to New York. So all of this happened in the span of just over a week. It's crazy, isn't that absolutely nuts? nuts. But it should have happened before it yeah, all it went into have. production.
2: Yeah,
1: January twentieth. Now they're at the Schubert Theater in Boston. It's a new theater, but it's a smaller stage, and they've got brand new material from a completely new writer. who's the new writer you know what i didn't write it down i think maybe his name was goodman let's just say his name was goodman he was a good man he was a good man well he tried to be (laughs) he tried it wasn't his fault it really wasn't producers sought and won a temporary stay from the new york supreme court that would postpone the hearing until the following week so they had an extra week now to change the whole show Mm -hmm. uh and after opening preview they said they needed more jokes they still needed more jokes I feel like, they're, like they've like they got their cigars and they're like, we need more jokes. <laughs> what do you think, Lawrence? Uh, my friends think it's funny. I don't know. <laughs> well, he's gone
2: now, though. Oh, he?
1: yeah, he's gone. I'm sorry. <laughs> he's gone. Okay. Next day, January 21st, they're at the Boston, Boston Ritz Hotel. The reviews are out and they are worse than Philly. Levine, he's done. He says, you guys have got my $250,000. i am giving you nothing more. I'm out. Yeah. Now there's no more money for the 3 week run in Boston. The producers decide they're going to close after 1 week in Boston and move to New York early. So, this is their thought process. We don't have enough money and it's not doing well enough to play Boston.
2: But we're going to take it to Broadway. Right? That so makes we'll more close sense.
1: early and open earlier in New York. Like I just like the thought process. I like, just don't get as it. As
2: if audiences in New York are going to be less
1: Difficult. Right. Less critical. Yeah. Well, I think at this point, too, I mean, they did have a press agent working on their behalf. Mm -hmm. And because everything was out of town and they didn't have the internet back then, Mm -hmm. uh, New York really was only hearing what the press agent gave them. So. It really was a strategic move mm-hmm. on their part to move to New York early. Uh, oh, but Suskin still needs $50,000 just to finish that week in Boston. So now he's got to go find it. Uh, so the cast is assembled before the curtain that night, and they're told that they would be performing in New York in one week. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether they are resi- excited or not. I know. Lewis Lapham didn't go into I that. They are just, just like, like all, like, all right, weary. <laughs> whoop-de-doo. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, January 22nd at 11.30pm, so I'm assuming this is after the show has finished that day, Mel Brooks and Yay! Leonard Stern <laughs> are flown into Boston <laughs> to rewrite the show and add more jokes. By 2am, it was decided... And, like, from 1130 to 2 a.m., this is the Mm -hmm. meeting that they were having. But basically it was decided they were going to fire Ella Logan and hire a new songwriter to replace the song called Home Again. And a total of nine out of 17 songs that were written by Charlotte had been cut at this point. And they were going to be writing two more scenes and several comedy routines to round out the book.
2: I'm sorry, guys. You can't see my face, but, like, I think my (laughs) eyes are, but I'm just, I can't.
1: It's really funny. Oh, my (laughs)
2: god, That's why I
1: laughed. So now, so that was January 22nd. They had the whole weekend to work. Now we're on January 25th, which is a Monday. They are at a dance studio on 6th Avenue. Cast is called into rehearsal. They're told that they're going to open on Saturday instead of Friday. They had a complete rewrite and that Ella's been fired. So, let's get to work. (laughs) Let's put on a show. So, Brooks and Stern had rewritten the show from Saturday morning through Sunday night. Kelly was now the boy next door. There were comedy routines scattered throughout, but the cast was still skeptical, and they were not feeling very confident. Skip now to the 27th, so they've had two days of rehearsals. The producers meet with the writers in hope of reconciling before the court hearing, which is the next day, but that fails. Mm -hmm. Uh, So January 28th, they're at the Supreme Court in New York. Justice Samuel Gold hears the arguments and will hand down the judgment in a few days. There is so much more information that I could not put into this because we, I mean, it was such a long, it's such a long right. story, but I wanted everything in it, but I couldn't, I couldn't include it. So right. it's all in the Saturday evening post. Mm-hmm. So I think what I'll do is before we air this episode, I'm going to post it um, to the Facebook.
2: Oh, wait, but the copyright, oh, we, we, we talked can't. about this. Oh, we can Oh, boo right. face. Yeah.
1: So I guess if you really want to know, <laughs> message me and I'll tell you over the phone. <laughs> No, I wouldn't do that. No. Maybe Facebook we'll do it in a mini tweeter. episode. Yeah, we, Maybe yeah, it'll we be one of that. our intermission episodes.
2: Yeah. Um, Corrections and
1: omissions. Yeah, but like the, the arguments themselves are like, oh. So anyway, but I won't go into it because I can't tell you anymore. Right. Okay. February 1st, they're at the Broadhurst Theater in New York City. Suskind has gotten that $50,000 so they can delay the opening now until February 6th. Now they've got an extra week to work before they open in New York City. The judgment is for arbitration, which means they can keep going ahead with the show and make all the changes they want. February 6th. Opening night. Uh, writers attend with tape recorders because their lawyers told them to. Ella Logan. Oh, love her. She's like a brass woman. <laughs> Ella Logan attends just because she wants to. She just came with friends. <laughs> There's not much laughter or applause, even with all of the rewrites. Reviews, though, don't come out until Monday. So now they have to wait. have to wait. But then they get them, Ebony. Uh-oh. They are ruinous. Wah, wah. Wah, wah, indeed. Monday morning, they decide to close the show. So it's like, Ugh. just give up the ghost. I mean, like, there are plenty of opportunities for them yes. to have just backed and not away. not have
2: wasted millions of dollars. And not have
1: wasted almost, well, more than $5 million in today's money. I'm tired. That was a long story. <laughs> it was a lot. It was a lot. All that litigation. Too. Yes. I feel like at any point, if the producers had been more honest, if yeah. the writers had been more flexible, if the actors had been more excited, if you know, if any of those pieces had right. come together, I feel like who knows it right. may have we been and I, I will say that there is a cast recording I have not been able to listen to the full thing just the, like the little snippets that are available mm-hmm. Um, but there was a new cast recording made because they did the show in its original form mm-hmm. in 1998 with mm-hmm. I love him Brian R C James no,
2: he's back in Hamilton oh, I
1: love he's him. my favorite king next to Alexander Gemignani I remember you told me that Yes. I will also say that he's doing this show on it's a Netflix original Called 13 Reasons. Yes. Why? 13 Reasons Why or just 13 Reasons? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's so good. He's just so I just good. I love him. I love him too. <laughs> oh, love you, Brian Darcy James. If you're listening, <laughs> I hope you are. <laughs> I'm tossing my non existent hair right now. <laughs> it's just very short. It's not non existent. I'm not bald. Short, yeah. It's just a very cute pixie. <laughs> Oh, yeah, but that's that's so it is available. You can buy it. Um, And like I said, it was the original version that Lawrence and Charlotte had intended. So that's kind of a neat story. Um, Theater Geeks Anonymous on Facebook. At Way on Twitter. <laughs> Way at gmail.com. If you have questions or comments, you can email us there. Mm-hmm. Please like, share, and follow us on Facebook. Tell all of your friends about us because I know they'd love it. Follow us on Facebook. Yes. Um you can uh, message rate, us review. on face,
2: face on, on Twitter. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Follow us on
1: Twitter. You can message us on Twitter. Rate, review, and subscribe. Um, and let us know what you think if you have any ideas or anything like that. And scene. <laughs> Break a leg. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs>